continue to pray for us, we, we ask uh, as we stand before you this morning uh, that we would be able to put aside the troubles uh, of this world, the cares of life uh, that creeps in so strong amongst us outside of these four walls. Um, we've been in the book of Joel this month, uh, so we want to turn to Joel chapter 2. Um, may bring one more uh, sermon uh, from this book uh, next week. They should be more happier, uplifting sermons. Uh, because this morning, I believe that we have found or we have arrived at the verse, we've arrived at the verse I wanted to arrive at. This is Joel chapter 2, begin reading with, uh, let's say Joel chapter 2, let's begin reading with verse 23, be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. To me, that is. That is the, the whole turning point and theme of the book of Joel. Somebody else may find a different verse that means something to them. For me, when I read through this book and I come to that one point in verse 25, that I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, that gives me hope for the future. Um, there, there's no doubt that if we were to all stand up and testify today, that we could all give uh, record upon record of wasted time in our life. Uh, it has been truthfully said uh, that youth is wasted on the young. Uh, I've told y'all before, I kind of wish that we were born old, and the better you got, and the more common sense you got, uh, and the more kind you got, the younger you would get. But it's, it's not that way. See, that way you would know who the cranky people were. You know, they would all, but it's not that way. You're, you're born into this world with nothing, and through hard work, by the time we leave, we still have most of it when we leave, most of nothing. And you ever wonder, you look around, you look at yourself, you look at people around you and say, have, have human beings learned anything? You know, what, what's that phrase, those that refuse to learn from history or are doomed to repeat the mistakes of it. And yet so many times I think people just refuse to learn from history. And they, they just, we're doomed kind of to just stand back and watch people do dumb things expecting a different response. Well, throughout all of this, Hosea last month, Joel this month, I can't tell you how many times I think about I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Now, it doesn't mean that when you wake up tomorrow, you're going to be uh, fit and young again. 
and able to do do it all over. It does it does mean though it does have reference to from this point on whatever point God chooses to bless Israel from this point on the weight of the good years from here on out will far outweigh the bad years that have led up to this. And in some respects I in some respects I think God's people are designed to be like this. Uh, Paul reminds us that when we get to heaven, he reminds us that the, the, the suffering of this world is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Um, when we get to heaven, eternity will be far greater than either trouble or trial or catastrophe that we endured down here on this on this planet. Um, I, I hear people say, well, I, I think today... My daddy must be looking over us, or my mother's looking over us, or my grandmother is looking over us. Well, my father died in 1983, and at no, at no point in my life have I ever thought my father is looking down on me. He is in a place where there's something far better to look at than what's down here on this earth. I don't expect to be looking in my rearview mirror when I get to heaven, and you won't be either. You're going to see something there that's going to make all the troubles and all the trials and all the problems of this life go away. Like they never even existed. But did you ever even notice how many times, how many times Israel, they begged to be delivered from Egyptian bondage. And God delivered them. But He put them in a place where they had to depend on Him. Led them in the wilderness for a number of years. It was 40 years it should have been shorter, but he did lead them 40 years. And through all that time, they murmured and they complained. It's, it's interesting how some people just like to complain. Have you ever noticed that? They, just, they don't want things to be fixed. They just want to complain. It doesn't matter what it is. Israel here is wandering in the wilderness, being led by God, but God has got them in a place where they are 100% dependent on him. And the only thing that they can think about is Egypt's land and the good things from Egypt's land. Remember that? Oh, we remember the onions and the leeks and the garlic. And we remember all the good things we had back then. Somehow you forgot how bad it was. Maybe that's what life ultimately is about. When we get to heaven, we're going to forget how bad this world was. And the only thing that we're going to be able to do is focus out on how good God is. Well, here in this text, he says, I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. We want to entitle the message this morning, God is able. See, when God says, I will restore to you the years the locust hath eaten, you may want to ask yourself, well, is God able to do that? We, we know that we see things in the world around us deteriorating and going to waste and falling away. But now he's saying, I'm going to reverse every bit of that. Well, is God able? Well, sure he is. We would say that certainly God is able. But actually there are three questions we want to ask ourselves this morning. Number one, is God able? And I believe that the Bible will uh, answer that question for us definitively. Um, but then there's a second question, because somebody may be able to do something, but what might be a problem? They might be able, but they're not 
willing to do that. That's right. You've known many people in your life that are able to help you, but they're just not willing to help. Oh, but they're able and they are willing. We see people willing to help others around us. So then the question comes around, is God able? We'll answer that. Is God willing? We will answer that. Is God willing and able, though, to help us? See, that's the important thing right there. Is he willing and able to help us? Now, is God able? Over in Second Chronicles, uh, I, I have to think that there are a lot of times, uh, there are a lot of times sometimes where God just kind of shows off once in a while. Uh, and I think Second Chronicles is one of those times. Second Chronicles 32. King Sennacherib sends one of his mighty men to Israel. And he informs them, we're fixing to invade you. And you, Israel, have a problem. Here's the message that is sent to Hezekiah at this time. And it's Second Chronicles 32, verse 13. Know you not... What I and my fathers have done unto all the people of other lands were the gods of the nations of those lands anyways able to deliver their lands out of mine hand? So you, you've heard what happened with the Amorites or the Moabites or the Jebusites or whoever the other termites and mosquito bites are that are in the land. When our army fought their people, their pagan gods didn't deliver them. I would say that King Sennacherib has got a positive self-esteem right now. Wouldn't you say that? He is confident of himself. Do you think by chance that pride is going to get him in trouble? Verse 14. Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my father's utterly destroyed, that could deliver his people out of mine hand, that your God should be able to deliver you out of mine hand. Here, the wicked pagan world asks the question, is your God able? Because we've done all this over here, and none of their gods help them. What makes you think your God is going to help you? Well, number one, it's one thing... A, to fight against phony gods. It's another thing to fight against the one true and living God. You can go out here and tear down all the buildings in the world you want with, with a bulldozer. But there is going to come a time when your bulldozer is going to come up against a mountain far greater and stronger than you ever thought. And this is the very text, this is the very context which we have read time and time again where in one night... One angel of the Lord slew 185,000 men of King Sennacherib's army. It's on the hills of this arrogant protest. And I just have to wonder sometimes if God doesn't just show up and show out just so he can show the pagan world how, how worthless they are. Is your God able? He is able. Daniel chapter 3. 
in the book of Daniel, there are, are good examples of this. Daniel chapter 3, we know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been commanded by the king to bow down at the golden image at what time you hear the sound of the flute and the harp and the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music at the appointed time of worship. You bow down before my golden image. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we will not do that. And they get arrested for not following the government mandates. And they're hauled up here before the king. And the king says, I'm going to give you one more chance. And if you don't do this, we're going to throw you into this burning, fiery furnace. Let's hear the words of these three Hebrew children in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God... Whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning furnace. Look at what they say. They, they, they know. They know He is able. Now, whether or not at this point He is willing is a different story. But they know He is able. In uh, Daniel 6, when Daniel himself, here's another government mandate in Daniel chapter 6 that says, You shall not pray to any God or any man except the king for 30 days. Well, we realize that the, the reason for this government mandate petition uh, was not for the health and safety of the people of that nation, but to promote the ego of the king at this time. And it was also to entrap Daniel. They knew that if there was anything that they could bring against Daniel, that would, the thing that they could bring against him was his faithfulness to his God. You know, ask my, I ask myself that question. If I could be found guilty of anything, could I be found guilty of faithfulness to God? I don't know. But Daniel prays. He said, wow, they told us we can't pray. You know what? We better pray about this. And Daniel goes and prays and they, and they tell the king and the king realizes he's been taken. The king realizes the wool's been pulled over his eyes. And he goes and he arrests Daniel and, and against his better judgment. But because it's his decree, he arrests him and throws him into the den of lions. Daniel chapter 6, we find that that night king did not rest well. But we know through biblical record that Daniel slept very well. The next morning, the king comes out to uh, the pit where Daniel had been laid down. And he says here in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 20, And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? He's waiting. Here's that echo. Daniel, was he able? And probably the greatest thing the king had ever heard was the sweet voice of Daniel saying, O king, live forever. My God, has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth that they have not hurt me. You know, I, I kind of wonder in this day and age in which we live in with so much turmoil that goes on around the world or in the world around us, we're living quite peaceful right now, our little church is. I kind of wonder if God has sent his angel to close the lion's mouth for us 
at this time. Something worthy to be thought about. Oh, is God able? When John the Baptist was baptizing by the River Jordan, Pharisees came to him and they said, well, we have Abraham to our father. We don't, we don't need all this other stuff here. Remember what uh, John the Baptist said to them in, in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9? He says, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. You can brag all you want who you are. God has the ability to stop and start all over with somebody else. Did you ever notice he says, God is able to of these stones raise up children unto Abraham. You ever ever wondered what those stones were there in Matthew chapter 3? Well, if you turn back over to Joshua chapter 4, it tells us that when Israel crossed over Jordan's river to go into Canaan's land, they were commanded that each head of the 12 tribes were to pick up a stone on one side and bring it across with them, and they set up a little uh, shrine or they set up a little temple or uh, uh, an emblem on the crossing uh, of Jordan piled up the 12 stones as a memorial and they were to tell their children this these stones are when God blessed us to cross Jordan's river into Canaan's land. And here they stand thousands of years later. Here they are, a memorial to the fact that God is able. Is our God able? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us about the faith of Abraham. That when he at one point went up onto the mountain to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. He went willing. He went able. He went to the top of the mountain to offer his son. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 9, according that God was Able, able to raise him from the dead, which he'd also received him in a figure. Abraham knew this. Abraham is using what God had done for him and Sarah to light the darkened path of the future. Here, Abraham's body was dead to to bringing forth children. Sarah's body was dead to bringing forth children. And yet God revisited this family and blessed them to have a son named Isaac. You know, that ought to give just a small little glimpse of hope even to our families nowadays. That when things grow cold and dead in your relationship, God is able to visit the husband and the wife and rekindle those fires of romance once again and that they could bring forth happiness and holiness and health in their family. Here Abraham goes to offer his son Isaac. He says, this is no problem. If I go and I slay him, God could speak the word from heaven, revive him, resurrect him, and bring him back from the dead. Why? Because God is able. I I think... uh, I think when we look at the book of Joel and and he says, I will restore unto you the years that the locusts have eaten, that ought to give us courage to know that God is able to do just that. Um, And though we know that God is able, we also need to remind ourselves that man is not able. Man is not able. 
He is not able to conjure the Spirit by Himself. He is not able to bring these things to pass. And He's also not able to stop God when God gets ready to work. That that probably ought to be the most encouraging thing that we as Christians uh, can believe, that man is not able to stop God when God gets ready to work. Haven't we read that time and time and time again? In, in the book of Romans chapter 8, I mean, isn't that the concluding thought of, of Romans chapter 8, that God has done uh, all this election, God has done all this predestinating, God has done all this choosing, God has done by His sovereign work things that will bless His elect family. But someone may say, well, well, well what if man doesn't agree? Or what if man doesn't help God? Or what if, man, what if some man gets between God and the man he wants to save and messes the whole thing up? Well... Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nobody is able to fight against God. And you know what? The, the fathers of the Old Testament realized this. Uh, in, Numbers chapter, uh, in Numbers chapter 11, Moses says to the Lord in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 14, he says, I am not able. I'm not able to solve the burdens of this people. I am not able to carry the burdens of this people. This is a burden that is too heavy for me. I think there's a lot of people going through life carrying burdens that are too heavy for them. A lot of people going through life carrying sorrows too heavy for them to carry. Moses himself said, I am not able. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, move on through the Old Testament there. 1 Kings chapter 3, when God said to, to Solomon, ask of me, ask of me what I will give thee. Here, here's a blank check, Solomon. I've signed it. I've written it out to you. You just fill in the amount. Ask of me what I shall give you. And what does Solomon say? Oh, Solomon asked for wisdom. Solomon asked for an understanding heart. Solomon asked for wisdom and guidance and an understanding heart because Solomon says in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, Who is able to judge this so great thy people? Moses would have said, I'm not able. Uh, Solomon says, essentially, who is able? Not me. Oh, gracious. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. Oh, this is a great one. Nehemiah chapter 4. When Nehemiah goes back to uh, help the people rebuild the walls around Jerusalem that are uh, broken down and, and burned with fire, um, they kind of they, they get started good. They, they kind of... Get started real well in the process of rebuilding these walls. But here in in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 10, it says that Judah said that the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed and there is much rubbish so that we are not able to build the wall. You know, do you ever look around at the the chaos in, in your life, you ever look around at the chaos in the church, you ever look around at the chaos in the world and you realize the strength of the bearers of the burdens is decay. There was a, a time, at least in our little assembly, where we had 
more bearers of burdens. Brother Bill Compton was here one time. Boy, if you heard him pray, we love to hear him pray. Cenas White, though he was a never, never a member here, did faithfully every Sunday. Never said much, but we always enjoyed having him around. Brother Heron was here. Sister Joe George was here. Uh, the, the Holcombs. Oh, wow, what, what a great backbone that this, that this church uh, had at one point with these great bearers of burdens, and it's now decayed. They're, they're gone. What are we going to do? Sometimes we may feel like Judah here. Oh, the, the, there's too much rubbish. There's, there's too much to be done, and, and we, we are not able. Uh, I want to remind Judah, it's not about us. It's not about what we can or cannot do. It's about Almighty God who is able. Jesus tells us again in John chapter 10, all that the Father giveth me uh, shall come to me. All that, uh, all that are mine are in my hand. They're in the Father's hand. Everything uh, in John chapter 10 that belongs to God and that belongs to Christ and, and this whole Godhead that's together, he says, no man in John chapter 10 verse 29 is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. No man is able. No man is worthy. So what, what might we, what should we do here considering this subject? Let's turn back to the book of Numbers. Numbers 13. Turn back to Numbers 13. Verse 30. So what, what has happened in Numbers 13? Twelve spies have gone into Canaan's land. Now, God had already told them, go and possess the land. You know what they should have done? They should have just got up and went. They should have just got up, went, and possessed the land. But no, they had to stop. No, they had to think about this. No, we need to go see if the land is as good as God says it is. What does it matter? God said, get up and go. They went. And you know what they found out? It was as good as God said. Imagine that. But something happened in the process. They saw all the good and great things. God says it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. It just means it's an, it's an overabundance. Of, of things to help you. It's an overabundance of help. It's an overabundance of provisions for your families. But folks, there's a problem. There's walled cities. There's giants in the land. And we're but grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way we can go in and take over this land. God didn't tell them to go in and fight. He told them, I'll go fight for you. You just go possess the land. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 31, it says that the men that went up with him said, oh, I'm sorry, verse 30, and Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. 
Uh, here's a hint here. He doesn't think Israel in their own strength is well able. He thinks Israel in the strength of God is well able. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Not in the power of yourself, but in the power of His might. And Caleb says, what's all this murmuring about? Let's just go. Verse 31, But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Evidently, he didn't have that verse that we have in the New Testament says that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1 says, All the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. Isn't it interesting how people are more willing to believe a false narrative or to believe a lie or to believe a, a tragedy or a disaster before they are to believe the truth? Jacob believed what he saw with his own eyes that his son was dead. But what did he see with his own eyes? He saw what his sons wanted him to see. A coat torn and dipped in blood. But he didn't see Jacob. Jacob didn't see Joseph. He never saw a body. But he easily believed that which was a lie. And yet, 20 years later, his sons come back to him and says, we've been down in Egypt and you're not going to believe who we saw. Joseph is down there, alive and well, and he's in charge. And Jacob wouldn't believe. I guess to him the old adage was, it's too good to be true. Well, my friends, the message that God is able is good and true. So what ought we to do, you know, given this situation here? I think we ought to encourage each other. To encourage each other. We ought to encourage each other. To encourage each other. There are some people who are carrying a heavy burden, a heavy load in life, and that heavy burden and load in life is a negative attitude and spirit. And it is weighing them down and weighing everybody down around them. And here, the congregation wept because of the ten spies who said, we can't do it. Well, but morning time came, right? That's good. Morning time came and the congregation rose up and said, you know, we've changed our mind. We want to go. And God said, too late. The only time you will hear the Primitive Baptists talk about too late is something here in life. God's never too late with His salvation. There used to be an old hymn that said that a bullet could reach uh, that the grace of God could reach a soldier boy falling from his horse to the ground before he died. And that is true. That the grace of God could beat a bullet racing towards somebody before they hit the ground and resurrect and save that person. But there are a lot of times in practical senses when God has told us to do something, we refuse to do it. The time passes and it gets too late. Time was too late for Israel to partake at that moment of that earthly blessing. Forty years later, they walked across Jordan and Joshua led them in the Canaan. Boy, if
if that's not an example of restoring the years you've lost, I don't know what is. Oh, God is able. But is he willing? Because this is, this really is a, a good question to us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5 speaks about Jesus Christ compared to the order of Melchizedek. But notice what is said of him in uh, Hebrews 5 and verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. He's reminding us. He's reminding us of the praying and of the the mourning that the Savior went through in, gar, in the gar, in Gethsemane's garden. And he would say to the Father, if it, if it be, let this cup pass. Well, it could have been. God very well could have delivered him. He never went to the cross. But had he delivered Christ from the cross, where would you and I be? Where would the entire elect family of God be had Christ never gone to the cross? So there are some things that God is not willing to do. He was not willing that any of us perish. And this is an interesting point here. You know, Peter said that. Peter made that statement. He said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And a lot of people are not quite sure what that means. You ever notice that when Peter makes that statement that he says that God is not willing that any of us should perish? Not willing that any of us should perish. Who's the us that's under consideration? If you go back to the beginning of the letter there in 2 Peter, you'll find out that he writes to the elect lady and her family, to the elect tribes scattered abroad. He's not writing to the whole dynamic world. He's writing to God's people. God is not willing that any of His people should perish. Let me back up. In Numbers, in in Nehemiah chapter 2. When Nehemiah gets to this place, Nehemiah goes with confidence to the city of Jerusalem. And after he addresses with them, you see the distress that we are in. This is number, that was uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. You see the distress that we are in. He concludes chapter 2 with this. Verse 20. The God of heaven, He will prosper us. Therefore, we His servants will arise and build. What other kind of confidence ought you have? When you prayed for the meeting this morning, and you prayed for being in the presence of God, did you expect God to answer? Yes. Did you know He was going to answer? No. 
But did you want him to, to answer and expect him to answer? Yeah, sure. It's called walking in faith. Nehemiah did that. He says, you know, let's, let's build. God will bless us. Let's walk forward. First Samuel 17. David goes uh, out against uh, Goliath. And, and what happens? King Saul says to David in 1 Samuel 17, he says, Thou art not able to go against this giant. He's, he's, he's been a warrior from his youth and you're but a child. What does David say though? David reminds him in 1 Samuel 17 about verses what 36 and 37 that I was out tending my father's sheep and there came a, a lion out and took one of them. There came a bear out and took one of them and, and I slew both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as both of those. What does he say in verse verse 37 there? That David said, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, He will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. You know, we read earlier from Daniel, 6, uh, Daniel 3 uh, when those Hebrew children said, God is able to deliver us from this burning furnace. They did not know at that time whether or not He would. But there's an astonishing statement that is made there in Daniel chapter 3. He is able to deliver us from this furnace. But this we do know. He will deliver us from your hand, King. One of two things is going to happen. We're going to die in this furnace and we're never going to see you again. And you're not going to bother us anymore. Or... He's going to deliver us from this burning furnace and you're going to be afraid to touch us. And you're not going to bother us anymore. We know He's able, but there's one thing we know He will do. He will deliver us from your hand. I talk about confidence. I mean, you talk about some great things. I think a lot of times, though, folks forget... Folks forget that the glory of God is at stake a lot of times. Turn with me to Numbers 14. Um, when Peter said in uh, when Peter said in Second Peter chapter three verse nine that the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, He's not willing that any should perish. Peter is not telling us that God wants all people everywhere to go to heaven. There's quite a little thought, really, that kind of also goes with that. The time that Peter had written his little epistle, that God is not willing that any should perish. How many years of human history did we have prior to that? You know, how many years of human history did we have prior to John 3.16? 4,000 years of human history? How many people lived and died during that time? How many people went to heaven? How many people went to hell? There's a significant number in both places by this time. Now God's going to take the first century to say, I don't want anybody to die. Are you, listening? Are you, are you following? Are you catching what I'm throwing here? He's going to pick the first century or he's going to pick A.D. 65 for Peter to write his letter and say, God didn't want anybody to die. Go to hell. Does that make any sense? 
He's already lost by that time. I got another one for you too. Numbers 14. Numbers 14, when, when God had gotten done with Israel at that time, he says, you know, you should have gone over to Lake Missit. He looks at Moses and says, you know what, I'm kind of done with these people. This is Numbers 14 and verse 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have shewed among them, I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Moses, I tell you what, I'm just going to throw the whole bunch away and I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to put your name in lights, put your name up on the billboard, make you a great person. Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. You know what Moses says? Moses said, this is not about me. This is about the glory of God. When the nations around you hear that you weren't able to do what you were willing to do, they're going to mock you. And people do that with God now. Preachers fill pulpits and say God is willing to save you if you would just let Him. But if you don't bow the knee, if you don't confess, if you don't accept Him, hell will be your home. Can you imagine a man? Can you imagine a man on this earth walking up to a young lady saying, will you marry me? Because if you don't, I'm going to kill you. Sounds abusive, doesn't it? And yet people fill their pulpits saying, God wants you to be part of the marriage, but if you're not part of the marriage, hell's going to be your home and you're going to die. So God's willing to save me, but He's not able because I'm not agreeable. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, He's willing to save you, but you just, you hadn't agreed to it. Lord. Lord delivers from that. Let Thy glory be known amongst all people. That God is not only able, He is willing, and He does what He's able and willing to do. Oh, God delivers from that. But then the question I know we're all asking, sure, God is able and God is willing, but is God willing to bless us? I know we have a tendency a lot of times to, to look at our life and based on the doctrine of the depravity of, of man and, and the depth of and exceeding sinfulness of our sin, we have the tendency to say, maybe God doesn't care about me. I know He cares about other people, 
because other people are far better than I am. Here's the reality. Other people need just as much grace as you need. There's not a person in this world that needs any less grace than you need. If you were the only person going to heaven, Christ would still have had to have shed the same amount of blood and suffered the same amount of time on that cross in darkness, receiving the wrath of God Almighty for you. If you were the only person, He still would have endured the same thing. It would have been no more for you and no less for anybody else. When you get to the book of Joel, the difference that we point out between them and Hosea was that those in Hosea, Ephraim and Hosea said, well, you know what? God said do this. So if we just follow on after day two, after three, God will do this. It's a paint by numbers thing. That's not the context of Joel chapter two. It's not a, if I do by the numbers, God will do this. It's a, if I do by the heart, God will do this. This is a message to, to Israel, His people. This is a message by extension to us. It is true in verse 14 of chapter 2 that the question is asked, Who knoweth? If He will return and repent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Who knows what God will do? But notice in verse 12. He said, Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to Me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. Turn to the Lord your God, for look at this. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. When it talks about the Lord repenting of evil, that doesn't mean that he has to acknowledge he's done anything wrong. That means he is turning away tragedy on his people. The term evil can mean wickedness, but it also means uh, difficult times or disastrous times. When Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, Remember thy Creator in the days of thy youth when the evil days come not. Uh, you can still have joy in old age, but you find you have joy in less things. The eyes don't work like they ought to. And when you read Ecclesiastes 12, that, that's really what that is. The whole description in Ecclesiastes 12 is the deterioration of the body. The, the, the windows outside close, the, the lookers outside shut. The, the strong men that, that keep up the house bow and bend themselves over. It's the deterioration of the whole body there in Ecclesiastes 12. So you can't do what you used to could do. You can't be who you used to be. My body knows I'm older. I wish it would tell my mind because my mind doesn't think I'm all that old anymore. But they're evil days. Because they spend most of your time and most of your money and most of your effort going to the doctor. Most of your time, most of your money, trying to figure out what ails you. Young people don't need health insurance, do they? Because they don't go to the doctor. It's the elderly that need the health insurance. You know, it's, it's, why can't we be born the other way around, you know? 
but they're called evil days. Not that when you're old, you're being wicked. They're troubling days. They're laborious days. He will repent of the trouble and the trial. He will turn from the trouble and the trial. And who knows if he actually will leave anything behind. You say, well, then what's the purpose? If we pray and we meet and we beg God to bless us and He doesn't really bless us, what's the purpose? The purpose is, is that no matter... Well, let me, let me say it this way. The purpose is, is that regardless of what happens, you'll never be worse off praying than when you didn't pray. See, when you turn from the world, you're going to lose something. When you turn from God, you're also going to lose something. But that which the world promises you when you turn from God never comes to fruition. It always costs you more when you turn to the world, when you turn from God. When you turn to God, everything you get from Him may not be everything you wanted, but it will be everything you need. And it will be everything better than what you had when you were with the world. Here he says, you know, will God bless us? Notice how many times. Verse 18, then will the Lord be jealous for this land and pity his people. Verse 19, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil and you shall be satisfied therewith and I will no more make you a reproach. Among the heathen. Verse 20. I will remove far off from you the northern army. And will drive him into a land barren and desolate. Verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice. For the Lord will do great things. Verse 24 says. And the floors shall be full of wheat. And the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. Now immediately we're kind of thinking of practical measures. Immediately, based on everything in this book, we're thinking that the fields are going to be ripe in the harvest again. They're going to have wheat again. They're going to have corn again. Sure, their economy is going to pick back up. All those things are going to take, take over here. But when I thought about that, the floors shall be full of wheat. I remembered in Matthew 13 that he gave a parable that the kingdom of heaven likened unto a good man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, the evil enemy came along and sowed sowed tares among the wheat. And I'm I'm reminded that God's people in the New Testament are often compared to wheat. And that when He comes back the second time, He will separate His wheat from the chaff. Wouldn't you like to see the buildings full again? Wouldn't you like to see the granary full of grain again? That the floors be covered with wheat. And you'd be satisfied with that. I'd like to see it. I'd like to see a renewed interest in God's house. From my perspective and from your perspective. You say, well... You know, the Bible says that where, you know, two or three are gathered together. Sure. If you've got no choice but to have two or three, the Lord can still be there. 
but I'd, I'd rather have two or three more than the two or three we've got. The, the last following of this chapter, which we may, can, we may look at next week, is that God said in verse 28, and after that it shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. The reality is, is that we can't do anything without the enabling of God's Spirit. God's Spirit has got to ignite a fire of devotion in our hearts. God has got to rekindle a flame in the ministry that we burn for the glory of God and not ourselves. Because, I mean, that's, that's what he, he wrote here. That's what he said, you know, verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. You know, when people come here, I'd like for them to fall in love with the doctrine of grace that we preach. I'd like for them to come forth, confess their faith in Christ, and be baptized. But what we want more than anything is not the name of the primitive Baptist to be known, the name of God to be glorified. That's the most important thing. It's not about us. It's about the glorification of God Almighty. When He lets go of His Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the church is invigorated with a power that never seen. There's a lot of confusion in, in today's society about just exactly what that means. I will think and tell you it means this one thing. That when the Spirit of God ignited the church in the first century, the word was this. They that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. The Spirit was so strong and so mighty in the moving of those first century disciples and apostles, the world knew they meant business. I think nowadays the government and the world is not afraid of the church. We're not afraid of the church because we're not ignited by the fire of God. We may be ignited through denominationalism or we may be ignited through tenets and articles of faith. But the moment that we step up here and we get ignited with God, it's something completely different. If we don't have God, we might as well go home. I saw this work one time. He says, I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. And I kind of got this verse on my mind years ago. And at that time, Sister Betty Culver was still a member here. Uh, and Brother Lewis would attend when they weren't, he wasn't preaching somewhere else. And they had a son. Remember him? Stephen. Scallywag. Ne'er-do-well. Ruffian. Who one day showed up. Remember that? He showed up and never went away. He's a member down there at Coosa River, down there where Brother Lewis pastors now. He was one of those that had gone away, one of those that had escaped, one of those sheep that had wandered from the fold. I think in, in short example, 
the Lord had showed, I can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. I hope he does that here. And whether it's me or somebody else's pastor, I don't care. I really don't. He's got to come down. He's got to ignite this place.